0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And our subject for today is 10 historical animals you should know, but it's a little bit of a tease because we're only going to give you one through five this episode. We'll give you six through ten in another one. Be coming up soon. (laughs) But of course, Candace and I had talked about historical dogs in a different podcast, and Sarah and I had talked about military battle horses, which... It's probably still one of my favorites, mainly because of Incatatis. I loved that episode and I love brainstorming it with you. We were like jotting down famous <laughs> horse names. It was a little bit of a last minute. It idea, was. It I was think. a
2: fun one though. But this topic is actually courtesy of Robert Lamb, who's one of our coworkers. Right. He does the Stuff from the Science
0: Lab podcast.
2: Yeah, and as most of you know, we're all editors and writers here at How Stuff Works too. We don't just do podcasts. And so when we have articles coming out, we all get together and brainstorm about what they'll cover through email. And so one article in particular, Robert made a suggestion to maybe cover some cool historical pets and Katie and I immediately emailed each other and decided
0: this would be an awesome history podcast idea. Well, we were thinking about things we've mentioned in earlier podcasts too, like uh, Josephine Baker's cheetah on the sun and Lord Byron's bear, you know, how dearly we love bears. And something about Hearst, was it
2: zebras? Yeah, just weird menageries, I think we've mentioned before. Hearst and Elizabeth Queen Elizabeth certainly has some weird, if slightly unfortunate, animal histories attached to her. Bear baiting, stuff like that.
0: Anti-bear. We have a whole list of royals and other historical figures that we consider to be anti-bear. Yeah. So just... You don't so, want to no. be on the list. No, you don't want to be on the list. So, let's bring you number 1, which is Henry III of England and the Tower of London Menagerie. So, Henry was a child king, but somehow or another, he managed to not get
2: murdered or imprisoned, which hey, good job. As you know from our Podcast, That's pretty impressive. Uh, but the barons, of course, as always, were rebellious. Right. This is during the 1200s, yeah. by the way. We should give you a little date on this. And they weren't very fond of this young king. Surprise. They were firmly behind the Magna Carta, which, you know, sort of took away some of the king's divine exclusive power. And... Um, they didn't really like his appointments
0: that, you know, the, the people he was putting in power. No, and they also didn't like his extravagance. He had some pretty heavy taxes, which people never like, uh, for building churches for these unsuccessful battles that he waged in France. He also tried to get one of his sons to be the king of Sicily and ended up taking on the Pope's debts in his quest to fight the Holy Roman Emperor. So, In other words, he wasn't particularly popular, but he fought for the rights of the monarch against the barons during this time when England was just sort of coming together and managed to strike a little bit of a balance between the nobility and the people and the king. And that's what he's known for, just a a brief bio. He's also known for another thing, though, and he's very closely
2: associated with the famous Tower of London menagerie. And so, We'll start, we'll start with how this whole thing got going because A menagerie is not made in a day. Henry was given leopards by Frederick II, who was the Holy Roman Emperor,
0: and the leopards didn't do so well. This is unfortunately going to be a theme with some of these. We didn't know a lot about how to treat animals in captivity, how to keep them safe, how to feed them, and you will see some sadder stories of that a little bit later.
2: Yeah, so these leopards died pretty soon after they were given to Henry, but their presence inspired him to bring in other animals from his family. and camels, and a lion, and over the next six centuries, all sorts of animals were
0: added to this menagerie, building it up over time. A white bear from the king of Norway, which may have been a polar bear, was allowed to fish in the Thames. Uh, I think they would attach a rope to it and just sort of let it go out and and see what it could do. Imagine (laughs) walking by, and that's what you're seeing in the morning. Uh, It died early as well, along with an elephant that was a gift from the king of France. But it was Elizabeth I who opened this menagerie to the public. And in the 18th century, this was the thing to do. You would go see the lions, the tigers, the bears... Uh, the hyenas, the rhinos, the antelopes. At one point, it was pretty expensive. So you could donate a cat or a dog to feed to the lions to get oh. in. Yeah, I know. And you could also get climbed all over by monkeys in the monkey room if you so desired. It's like a nightmare. <laughs> I really? I would love that. I have a little oh. monkey sit on my shoulder and play with it. The
2: menagerie was really well known for its lion tower, which was a separate enclosure. Um, And at one point, it actually housed Barbary lions, which are now extinct in the wild. Yeah, I think there are a couple in captivity, but that's pretty much it. But not everything is, is fun animal sightseeing in the Menagerie. There's some ghoulish
0: tales from it, too. King James may have added some eagles and jackals to the collection, thanks, James. But he also liked to throw in a lamb or a dog and just sit there and watch a lion completely tear it apart. And George III fed an ostrich iron nails to see if it could digest them. And, you know, when it died, they figured it out that uh, it couldn't. It's such a terrible thing to do. Well, apparently they thought at the time that ostriches could. I don't know where that came from, but I guess I should give them credit for at least... Trying it out? I don't know. I'm not going to give Am them I'm not sponsoring <laughs> animal. I'm, I'm not promoting animal <laughs> experimentation here.
2: Um, and we also have sort of a sad elephant tale from this menagerie, too. It turns out that the elephants were often fed nothing but gallons of wine. So they obviously died because elephants can't live on wine.
0: Well, And this went on for a while. It wasn't just like it happened with one elephant. It wasn't like the ostrich incident. And they, well, exactly. And they couldn't figure it out, you would think, with... I don't know. You might want to take a scientific approach and try to figure out why elephants that are only fed wine keep dying. Well, especially even if you don't look at it from
2: uh, being kind to the elephant itself, I'm imagining it would be a pretty big
0: investment to bring an elephant to England. You'd want to take care of it. You You would think, Sarah, but you would be wrong. So the menagerie was shut down in 1835 by the Duke of Wellington, and many of the animals went to the London Zoo. And now let's bring you number two on our list, Cosimo de' Medici. Sorry, Cosimo I de' Medici, and a monkey. Since there are a lot of Cosimos. There there are a lot of Medici period, but there are, yeah, there are a lot of Cosimos.
2: But this guy's around from 1519 to 1574. He is, of course, the Duke of Florence and the Grand Duke of Tuscany,
0: and... We've
2: talked about the Medici so much. We're not going to get too much into Cosmo's life. He's
0: not the most interesting one to me. So I started outlining his biography and then just kind of stopped and decided I was more interested in the story we're about to tell you. Yes. So this Medici animal story isn't a nice one. Uh, Cosimo was in the audience for a fight. It was a fight between a court dwarf who was only dressed in his underpants and a monkey. We know this from uh, letters and court records of the time from medici.org. Which is a great website. It's a fantastic I think website. Um, it's a pretty brutal fight. Both participants are injured, the dwarf in the shoulders and arm and the monkey in the legs. And This is the confusing part. Somehow, the monkey gave a sign that it was ready to surrender, and Cosimo interpreted it as such, but the dwarf did not and tried to beat the monkey to death. So Cosimo stopped him, and the dwarf won the fight and was rewarded, but the monkey was saved. So I'm not sure exactly how Cosimo spoke monkey language. Yeah, that's not really known as something that Medici were fantastic at. But there's also another Medici animal story Yeah, the Medici Giraffe. And um, we could have talked about Julius Caesar because he's another... Another giraffe owner. I couldn't find enough information about him in time. But the Romans are the ones who named it to the camel leopard. And that's still in its scientific name. Yeah, but uh, Lorenzo de' Medici, who we've talked about
2: extensively, had a giraffe in the 1400s, which, of course, no Florentine had ever seen a giraffe. This is just the kind of thing that can add to your reputation as
0: a Medici, bringing in a giraffe. Italy? Exactly. And it was possibly a present from a sultan who needed help against the Ottomans. But we are going to go from one of the illustrious Medici to a US president, Teddy Roosevelt and a badger. So Teddy Roosevelt was a young president. He was only
2: 43 when McKinley was assassinated and he rose to power. And his famous quote was, speak softly and carry a big stick. Um, but he wasn't a stay in the office, a kind of, a of politician, not at all. He's a rancher, a hunter, a big fan of going on safaris. That's probably one of the things he's best known
0: for. And also a conservationist. And yeah, not to mention a rough rider in the Spanish-American War, but his political reputation, he's known for being a trust buster. He's known for being very involved in foreign affairs and before that we were a little more laissez-faire. But as Sarah mentioned, yeah, he's also known for being a conservationist and for being a naturalist. Candace and I talked a little bit about that and was Teddy Roosevelt, the first green president, an earlier podcast. But uh, if you remember Roosevelt's great trip out west, that's when he discovered places like Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon and decided to save them from development and that's where our story's from. So on that trip he stopped in Sharon
2: Springs, Kansas in May
0: 1903
2: to this reception of odd Americans. Uh, you know, um, you can just imagine it. He's coming in on this fancy train, it's the president, all the splendor super exciting for all the people in this little town. So everyone came out to meet the train, including a little girl who asked him if he was interested in having this little baby badger she caught.
0: Which is the sweetest
2: president. Badgers are
0: mean and nasty, but I imagine... But it's such a cute idea. She's like, what is the coolest baby, thing I currently have? A baby badger. I know, a baby badger. <laughs> Maybe the president would want it. And the He's totally into it. Oh, yeah, he says yes to her offer, and he lets her and her friends tour this fabulous train, and he gives them flowers. And this badger named Josiah continued on the journey with Teddy, who fed it potatoes and milk, and it even lived at the White House for a while until his nasty badger behavior (laughs) caused him to be sent to the Bronx Zoo, and that was the end of the badger in the White House. So we're going to go from Roosevelt to a very different kind of man, Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar and his hippos. So Escobar was an incredibly wealthy Colombian drug lord.
2: It's estimated that at one point he was in charge of perhaps half of the U.S.'s
0: cocaine market in the 1970s. When cocaine was extremely popular. So we're talking billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. And, of course, you don't get to the top without some ruthlessness and without making quite a lot of enemies. Escobar was assassinated in 1993 after he had a government official killed for proposing to extradite him. But he really enjoyed the wealth he had. He's living it up. His favorite estate was this 5,500 acres called Hacienda Napoles. I think I'm saying that right. I'm sorry if I'm not. And he threw the usual drug-fueled parties, but he also had quite the menagerie, full of elephants, zebras, giraffes, ostriches, and hippos. So after he died, the Colombian government took over the hacienda.
2: What are you going to do with this huge piece of land, let alone all the animals that since has fallen into disrepair, complete disrepair? It's been taken back by nature. There's bamboo and insects. It's been looted. And the animals aren't there anymore. Most of them have either died or been sent off to
0: zoos, except for the hippo collection. So, Escobar's hippos—four of them—came from a dealer in New Orleans at $3,000 each. I don't personally know any hippo dealers in New Orleans, <laughs> but maybe I just don't it's have their friends. Katie. And there are some things you should know about hippos. Uh They're huge. They're up to four tons, twelve feet long, and five feet tall—the males, at least. They're faster than you if they're running on land. Which Even is though something they don't look I didn't good. Know. No, they look so ponderous, I guess. <laughs> they're actually pretty quick. Uh, they're a bit bad-tempered, and they reproduce quickly when there aren't any enemies around. So those four hippos quickly turned into more than 20 hippos. So, as Sarah mentioned, yeah, the government takes over this hacienda and they're faced with this dilemma. What do you do with the hippos? What do you do with a bunch of hippos? Transporting them would be so incredibly expensive. So for a while, they just left
2: them alone. Inaction. And, of course... You get more and more hippos that way because they're not <laughs> just sitting around. And as the estate fell apart, uh, the hippos that are increasing in numbers started to leave and go roaming about looking for other sources of food. So imagine a hippo
0: stomping around in your neighborhood. It's, it's eating your crops. I was saying this there earlier. It's it makes Peter Rabbit probably not looks so bad to Mr. McGregor. Oh, pretty fuzzy and cute. (laughs) So they've become a safety hazard around the area, according to the government at least. And some have suggested killing them, while others have urged the government to give them to some kind of organization, like a, you know, like a reserve or something. Hippo preserve. But there aren't any takers because, I mean, seriously, getting a hippo moved is a big, expensive deal. So, they're still roaming the hacienda and menacing all the people who would like to develop the land because they're very territorial, and that <laughs> hacienda is now hippo land, so you're on notice.
2: <laughs> oh, that might be my favorite one. All right, but our final for this first part of our series is
0: Charles Darwin and Harriet the Tortoise. Darwin lived from 1809 to 1882, and... And he wasn't a great student growing up, but that didn't mean he wasn't interested in the sciences. He loved the outdoors and chemistry and travel, natural history, zoology, collecting insects, botany, geology. And I personally would love to talk about his personal life in another podcast, especially his relationship with his wife, which I think is really cool. Um, But what we know him for, of course, are his contributions to the theory of evolution. So it makes sense that we'd be talking about an animal friend of his. So Darwin's famous pet tortoise,
2: Harriet, was known as the oldest tortoise in the world when she died of heart failure just a few years ago. She was 176 years old, which, as you'll see, you get to experience
0: a lot of stuff if you live for 176 years. I don't think she actually was the oldest, even though that was her reputation. Uh, she was beaten by an Aldabra tortoise named Clive, who lived to 255, and a Madagascar tortoise named, I think, Tui Malila at one And the latter tortoise's other claim to fame was having been given to Tonga's royal family by Captain James Cook. But Harriet, of course, has an even more impressive pedigree. Even if she's not the oldest. Well, she belonged to Charles Darwin, or at least that's the story. So
2: supposedly, Darwin bought... Harry at the time, from the Galapagos in 1835, he thought she was a boy, she wasn't, he was good at some stuff, but maybe not turtle gender identification. But this wasn't just any trip to the Galapagos, obviously. It was a voyage on the HMS Beagle. And the mission of the voyage, of course, in case you're a little fuzzy on it, was to chart South America's coastal waters. And the captain was Robert Fitzroy, who had invited Darwin along just for company. He was a Fun guy to hang out with, you know, a good nothing conversation to do list. with
0: his scientific accomplishments or his knowledge. It was just like, it would be really nice to have someone to talk to while I'm doing this. Hey, there's, you know, good old Chuck over there. He should come with me. Exactly. But the voyage lasted five years, and Darwin was just happy as a clam, even though he's staying on land the whole time, investigating the flora and fauna of the islands. He's observing. He's taking notes. He collects 1,500 specimens and... More importantly, he begins to develop his theory of natural selection. So, if Harriet was present for all of this, I'm going to count her as a very lucky tortoise, indeed.
2: Yeah, I imagine them just You know, he's working at night by candlelight, period, sitting there.
0: Smiling in a (laughs) tortoise-like sort of way at him. She would have been about the size of a dinner plate when he took her home and a very young little creature. There are doubts about whether Darwin brought her back, but nevertheless, that is the story that stuck with her. And in later years, she lived at the Australia Zoo, and Steve Irwin's family adored her. They considered her a member of the family, which is pretty cute.
2: So with these five entries, I bet you're wondering what we have coming up. How could it get any better,
0: right? So you should tune in soon for 6 through 10. And that brings us to listener mail. And today's emails are all about the Essex. This one is from Jesse. And I just listened to your Race to the South Pole podcast, and I was excited to hear something about Antarctic history. I've been working in the U.S. Antarctic program in various capacities for many years, so I thought I would share my real-life Antarctic reading list. I, too, have been pinned down by terrible weather, although definitely nothing as dire as what Captain Scott and his men experienced, and have found that anything by Charles Dickens is great to have along – Dickens' novels are interesting enough to keep me engaged and dense enough to take me a long time to get through. When you stand to face days without being able to go outside, you don't want to be stuck with light reading that you can breeze through in a few hours. I read Martin Chuzzlewit and Bleak House during a couple of my trips— And also, you perhaps don't know this, or maybe it was intentional, but your podcast aired on the same day that the National Science Foundation started up the 2010-2011 USAP summer field season at McMurdo Station, September 23rd, New Zealand local time, continuing the tradition of world-class scientific research that the early explorers like Scott pioneered, nicely timed. And actually, no, we didn't know that. That was completely coincidental. It was. It's great. And we have a couple more. We've got one From Kirk, who said he had two takeaways from the episode. Uh, First was that after centuries of whaling, this was the first and only time a whale had attacked a ship. The Nantucket boys had been slaughtering them for generations, and the whales just swam along and took it. So the whalers were flabbergasted and never saw it coming. Second was that the whale managed to sink them at just the right spot geographically. So they were farthest from land. Anywhere on Earth, smack in the middle of the Pacific, 4,000 miles from anywhere in any direction. So nice job, Cetacea. So which which is a very good point. (laughs) And we've also got one from Anson who said, Greetings from the Yellowknife Northwest Territories. I enjoyed the Race to the South Pole podcast, but I want to offer one correction. Inuit is the plural form for Inuit people, not Inuits, as mentioned in your podcast. Sorry about that. We didn't know. And a single Inuit person is an Inu, two syllables. And also, regarding the dreaded man sledge, this can be used to great effect, as shown by John Ray. He mapped huge sections of the northern Canadian coastline, as well as discovering the fate of John Franklin's expedition. So thank you for, one, the correction, and two, the interesting piece of information. We've
2: gotten a lot of suggestions for Ray, too, especially
0: after the Franklin podcast. And Shackleton. Job. We got a lot for Shackleton after the Essex. So People gonna, like their polar explorer. We're going to have to think about that one. But if you'd like to email us with any history facts that we've missed or would like to know, our email is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We've also got a Facebook fan page and a Twitter feed at in history. And going back to our historical animals of the day and their owners, we've got a great article on the site on Charles Darwin by Robert Lamb. If you'd like to search our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of
1: other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class
2: blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.
1: and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
2: Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, Yeah.